Uh, Jonah Davis is our scripture reader this morning, and he'll be reading from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Our scripture reading for today is from Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall eat, she shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit from the mist of the garden. Fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and she, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked, and, the, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called to the man and said to him where are you and he said I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. I said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said, The woman was, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Never has a tragic story sounded so cute and precious. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, We're thankful for the power of your word that it speaks to us. Um, No matter our age, uh, no matter our background, no matter what we believe, uh, it is 
powerful to pierce our hearts. And I pray that it would do that this morning, uh, that it would challenge us and shape us, and uh, that it would ultimately encourage us that we would be led to the good news of your kindness and grace. We love you. Thank you for loving us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So chapter three signals a clear break in the story. Uh, contrast how chapter two ends with the beginning of chapter three. So Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That's a sharp change. Interestingly, in Hebrew, the words for naked and, craft and crafty are very, very similar. They're off by just a little vowel point. Um, but they're not the same words, right? Uh, they're very different, and that is often how deceit works. It's almost true, but not quite. It's almost the same, but it's not the same. And so first, the serpent asks a question. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Uh, First of all, what a wild question to ask given the setting. She is literally in paradise. She is in the Garden of Eden. Of course she can eat. It's shalom. She doesn't want for anything. But with this question, the way he asks it, the serpent does highlight something true, how God, a supposedly generous God, is withholding something from Eve. And even Eve initially responds very dutifully, correcting the serpent. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Eve misspeaks here, overstating God's rule, and we don't really know why, um, but the serpent responds. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice that unlike Eve, he doesn't misspeak. Uh, he never says anything that's factually incorrect. Um, in that way, he's almost not correcting God, he's correcting Eve, uh, clarifying uh, facts for her. The serpent is right on all accounts. Everything he said comes true. She doesn't die immediately upon eating the fruit right? Her eyes were opened when she ate the fruit. She uh, saw her own nakedness. And God confirms later that indeed her and Adam did become in some ways more like God. Uh, that's why he banished them from the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3:22. then the Lord God said to himself, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So the serpent didn't lie technically, but Eve was still deceived into disobedience. Genesis 3, 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And so again, Eve technically saw the tree rightly. God said himself, she's, she's thinking God's thoughts after him. In Genesis 2.9, he says that the trees that he caused to grow up are pleasant to the sight and good for food. Those are his words. And the tree was named the knowledge of, the good, of good and evil. It was powerful to make one wise. So Eve wasn't wrong. Uh, you could maybe say that the serpent actually helped her to see the tree more clearly. So what happened? The story says outright what went wrong. 
Adam is judged by God in Genesis 3.17. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And so what did Adam do? He listened to the voice of his wife who is listening to the voice of the serpent. That's the question he asked him. Who told you you were naked? Who did you listen to? Adam let someone besides God tell the story. Eve shifted her trust from God to a creature, the serpent. And the creature may have gotten his facts right, but he used them to tell the wrong story. At the fall, the serpent recasts the universe as an economy of taking instead of an economy of giving. He retold the story using the same facts, same characters, same events, but instead of God being the original giver, he became the original taker, right? Which is wild because God created everything. He gave everything. Eve and the serpent both had no existence apart from God, but somehow God was withholding good from Eve, a good that could be hers if only she would reach out and take it. And at that point, a new story for money was born. Instead of the story of money being based in gift, the story is now based in mistrust, competition, deceit, suspicion, jealousy, hoarding, theft, lust, violence. It begins with Eve's taking what was not hers to take. What do the Ten Commandments prohibit? They all prohibit taking. You could, re, you could restate them all in a way of taking. Each of them, in their own way, warn against taking what is not yours to take or keeping what is not yours to keep, which is a kind of taking, right? Theft, obviously, taking someone's property. Bearing false witness takes someone's reputation. Adultery takes someone's spouse. Murder takes someone's life. And all this taking is justified by a false story. People feel justified in these sins. A story that tells me, this false story tells me that someone is always going to be taking from me, and so I just need to be a better taker. Interestingly, the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann sees the core biblical story from Adam to Moses um, as a story about coveting and about rescuing humanity from its addiction to wanting and taking. Uh, Brueggemann writes, coveting is the desire to transcend oneself by seizing what is not one's own, a refusal to accept the limitations of oneself. And in this way, it is idolatrous. Uh, Jesus says so, Paul says it. Uh, Eve saw herself in competition with God and refused to accept the limitations that he placed on her. But the thing is, the world was not created through competition, that's, that's a wrong lens to see the world in. It wasn't forged in war or lack. Those are pagan ideas. The moral center of God's universe is gift. That's the true story. It's all gift with God as the original giver, the constant giver, the giver who created us to be givers. But sin disrupts that flow. It corrupts shalom whether from pride or anxiety or both, we start to take and it's all over. It's like when you play telephone with kids and somebody intentionally says the wrong thing, right? Just because some jerk kid wanted to say fart, you know? And um, 
it totally ruins the game, right? It's, it, the game is over when you have that kid doing that. Taking, it is funny. Um, <laughs> taking ruins God's world. It just leads to more taking until there's nothing left to take. Now, again, Satan does have a point. He says true things to Eve. Was not God withholding something good from her? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was part of God's good creation, very good. And it was, it was powerful to make her wise. So was not God keeping her from her potential, keeping her from seeing the truth about herself? What's so bad about the knowledge of good and evil? Why could only God have it? Was he jealous? Was he fearful? What is going on? And I mentioned this last week, and I think it's important to reiterate, God is a giver, always. Giving is what God does. It is his glory. God is love, and that means he cannot take. It is, in fact, impossible for God to take because he has no need. Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. Paul's speaking to uh, philosophers in Athens, uh, people who believed in pagan gods, and he's contrasting their pagan views with his own. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God never needs, he only gives. God's perfection prevents him from taking. He can only give, God is a giver. Now, most of the time, God's giving just looks like giving, right? That's what we talked about last week. The universe is one big, magnificent gift, We don't deserve to exist. We're not entitled to existence. But out of his free goodness and glory, he gives existence to us. He sustains us and he sends us opportunities for gladness on a daily basis. There's always, every day, an opportunity to be glad. Psalm 104 praises God for just this kind of giving. It says, from your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. And so this kind of generosity, this kind of giving just looks like giving. Sometimes, though, God's giving looks like taking. Where God indeed takes something from us or keeps something from us, but it's always in order to give something better. It's a taking, which is actually a form of giving. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. God was withholding this tree from Adam and Eve, but it was in order to give them a more perfect knowledge, a better knowledge that they might know good and evil through faith and trust and obedience. So in this way, the rule against eating from the one tree was itself a gift because God always gives. But Eve misses this. Sin, on the other hand, is a taker, always. God is always a giver. Satan and sin, the serpent, are always takers. And sometimes Satan's taking just looks like taking, right? Disease, famine, poverty, abuse, victimization. That's taking, which is just pure theft. 
But Satan is a deceiver, and so sometimes his taking looks like giving, where he offers something to us, tempting us, but it's ultimately so that he can take something much more valuable, our very life even. And it's not a gift, but a trade and a bad one at that. What did the serpent offer Eve? The knowledge of good and evil. What did he take from her? Everything. Uh, One of my favorite Disney villains is the voodoo doctor in The Princess and the Frog, Dr. Fasselier, the shadow man. It's a great story. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. Um, He's wickedly charismatic. He has some great songs. I like him a lot. But I think he's my favorite in part because he believes in evil spirits, and so do I. And so he's a more compelling character for me. Um, He's a more realistic villain, uh, more than like Ursula, a big, huge uh, octopus. That's right. She's an octopus. Um, In the story, the shadow man makes a deal with demons for money. That's what he wants. He says at one point, magic isn't the real power of the world money is. And so he wants more of it. He wants to get rich. And so he offers the demons, his friends on the other side is what he calls them, uh, the soul of a prince in trade for magic that might get him money, uh, get him wealth. But in the end, he loses, of course. And there's this terrible scene where the demons drag him into a fiery grave. Uh, Not a G-rated moment if you actually believe in demons. (laughs) Um, But one of his lines is a great one. He tells Prince Naveen, who sought his services but got tricked, he says, you got what you wanted, but you lost what you had, which is a great line. This is the tragedy of sin. You get what you want, but you lose what you have. That's the story of Adam and Eve, and it's our story. We've forgotten that the moral center of the universe is gift. We have everything, everything we need. But instead, we have made the moral center scarcity and competition. It's about anxiety and self-protection and meritocracy and nihilism. And to make sure we continue to see the world this way, ignoring the gift, ignoring the giver, the serpent still comes around, crafty as ever, just asking questions, saying true things, technically true. You will not surely die. And we, like Eve, rather than shut down the lie behind the truth, entertain Satan's interpretation And we'll look at something that has not been given to us. And we'll think that looks good. It probably tastes good. And it has the power to make me wise. And those are all technically true things. We're not saying anything wrong about wealth and money. But it doesn't matter if it wasn't given to us. It belongs to my neighbor. And then that desire, James 1.14, we're lured and enticed by our own desire. And desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Like Eve, we reach out and take what is not ours to take, what has not been given to us. In fact, what has been purposefully withheld from us by God so that he could give something better. And in the end, we get what we wanted, but we lost what we had. This is the story we live in now. The serpent story. Uh, Sin turns us all into takers. But graciously, that doesn't stop God from giving. Remember, he can only give. That's who he is. In fact, our sin simply turns up the glory of his giving. 
Matthew 5.45, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What's more, Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The gospel gift disrupts the economy of taking. It overpowers it. Jesus comes down and messes up our telephone game like we messed up his. Jesus comes and he doesn't let us take from him. He won't let us do it, right? He gives before we can take. John 10, 18, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own account. I'm not even going to let you take from me. I'm going to give. Nothing was ever taken from Jesus. Isn't that amazing? No one ever took from him. Even his suffering, it was all given freely because he loved his father and he loves us. It's all gift. And the awesome power of God's gift Exceeding the original gift of God's creation, a new creation, the power of this gift blows the socks off the weakness of our taking. Sin, sin's taking can't compete with God's giving. Romans 5.15, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man much more, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? There is no comparing our sin and God's giving. It overwhelms it. And now, having received so generous a salvation, we are freed up to give again. Having been forgiven, cleansed, adopted, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, as people who no longer are enslaved to mammon, we serve God and we're invited to participate again in God's gift economy. It's like the prodigal son, right, who comes back and who is given a robe and put on a, a, given the ring of sonship. With all the authority, that gave him authority when he got that ring. It's not just an adornment. He became again the son, and he had authority to be a steward and giver in his father's house. And so if that's our story, Jesus is right in Matthew 6, 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. They're operating in an economy of taking, worried, anxious. But your heavenly father knows that you need those things. And so seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's the true story. But of course, it's hard to keep this mindset. Uh, first, because we're all recovering takers. And so we relapse often. 
and second, because we're trying to be givers while still living in a world that expects taking. Um, not always voracious taking, but at least a readiness to take if need be, right? Um, every man for himself, like no free lunch, it's just business. Those are the kinds of things that we are expected to operate with, and so it's pretty vulnerable to not operate in those ways. We don't live in a gift economy. So what do we do? I found it personally helpful this week when thinking through my own wealth and finances to remember these two stories as applied to me, these two stories, and more importantly, the voices behind the stories. To remember first that God is always a giver. For God, often God's giving looks like giving. Sometimes, though, God's giving looks like taking, but he always takes in order to give. And so to think through my life in that lens. But then also to think about Satan, the serpent. He's the opposite. He's always a taker. And sometimes his taking is just taking, and we should grieve that. But sometimes his taking looks like giving. He's trying to trick me, but Satan always gives in order to take. Sin always gives in order to take. And so you can take the same set of facts and run it through both stories and both voices. Ask yourself, what in your life has God given you recently that's just pure gift? It needs to be celebrated as a gift. And in a gift economy, it needs to somehow result in more gifts. So we're given, and it increases our power for generosity. That's how God's generosity works. It makes us more generous. So how will God's gift make you more of a giver? How will this gift empower you to love God and love your neighbor? Similarly, ask yourself, what in your life has God taken from you recently where the taking is actually a gift? That too needs to be honored as a gift. It is fair and right. Maybe you're not able to celebrate it just yet. It's not as easy to like rejoice in taking. But as people who believe this story, we can still confess in our loss that God is always a giver even in his taking. And so how in this taking might he be opening you up to a different kind of gift? By contrast, Satan and sin is always taking. He will sneak into your life, the life that God has sovereignly given you, and he'll take the same set of facts, the same circumstances, but make it about taking and being taken from instead of giving and receiving. Sin will offer you a gift, but it's not a gift. It's a trade, and it's not a good one. And so where are we, like Eve, being tempted by sin's gift when it's actually theft? Maybe moving forward will result in less giving, not more. Um, this isn't cut and dry. It requires a lot of prayer. Um, I'm grateful for Adam's leadership and citizens' communities encouraging us to discipline ourselves in prayer, uh, for Mike leading our community as the deacon of prayer. Um, we need well-rounded prayers like Acts, which sort of discipline us to adore, confess, thank, and uh, suppl supplicate, um, ask. Um, it, it gives, it, it sort of helps us think through this lens in practice. Um, this week, our family bought a second car, and 
I'm really thankful for it. Um, it allowed our family to drive separately to church this morning, which is really delightful for um, Maggie and me. I could come earlier than we would, and she could come later, which is fantastic. Um, it's made work this week um, a lot smoother, allowed Maggie and I to more easily divide and conquer uh, uh, having kids in middle grade and middle school. Um, I agonized over this purchase, though. Um, it was hard. Uh, a lot of stress. We've been married for 17 years. We've only bought three cars. This is not something that I normally do. Um, frustration, late nights, like researching and worrying. And the experience often felt like I was being taken from. Um, long story short, we were just about to finish paying off some medical debt, and we're getting really excited for the opportunities that that would open up to us, um, the sort of freedom and security of not having that monthly payment, and this new car is basically that payment. Um, and so it just sucked. That's not what we wanted. Um, it felt like taking. And first, it felt like our need for a second car was taking from us. But then I was also fearful that I was taking from others. It's a kind of like a luxury, right, to have. And so I was worried that, man, we're entering into this commitment. Am I robbing from other people? Um, it's limiting our ability to be generous. Do we really need this? But this week, the character of God as a giver really helped me um, and, and really un helped me get unstuck. I was first able to celebrate the car as a gift from God. Like, it's just a gift. Um, it's so helpful. It's a lot nicer than our old van. It makes our life so much smoother. Um, and I was able to name that in making this purchase. It felt like um, a gift, but it also felt like God was taking from us. There was a sense where he was taking what we expected away. This isn't what we wanted to spend our money on. We will be less free than we were before. But then I... Remember that God is taking from us to give us something, right? That's, that's why he takes, because he's a giver and he wants us to be givers. Because the thing is, we may have less money, less liquid wealth than we had before uh, Tuesday. Um, I, and that means I can't use this car to pay for your medical bills or save for retirement or give to missions. Like It's, it's an illiquid asset, God could, could call me to sell it, and, and maybe he will, um, but most likely it's going to stay a car. But the thing is, I still have wealth, but just in a different form, right? I have, I, my wealth is no longer cash. It's, it's a car. In taking money from me, God gave me a car, and I hope to drive that car for 10 plus years. I hate buying cars. I don't want to buy another one. Um, and, and think of all that could happen in 10 years. In so many years, what gifts might God have for me in that car? Right? What conversations with friends? What family moment? What quiet time? What gifts will that car facilitate for others? How will it make me generous in a new way, in a different way? And so while car shopping is the worst, it's definitely an economy of taking. Um, once it was done, though, and we were driving away from the dealership, it, admittedly, I'm still anxious about it, I find myself praying through those categories. God, you are a giver. Today and always, I can trust you and believe that this car is a gift. And that even the cost of it is a gift. 
Help me to be faithful with the giving and the taking, with the benefit and the cost. When it comes to money, both your abundance and your lack are gifts. Somehow, some way, God intends it for good. Cosmic good and your good, if you'll listen to his story, his interpretation of the facts. But sin has different intentions for your abundance and lack. The serpent only wants to take from you. And so I was asking myself also, man, what story am I telling myself about this card that is actually the serpent's story? Am I telling myself that I deserve this car? Is that how I'm going to get over the hump of not wanting to buy? It's like, oh, you know what? I deserve this. We need this to justify myself. Or am I telling myself that I don't deserve it, and so I'm feeling shame and condemnation? That is not God's story. That is the serpent's story. Am I anxious, worried that God's generosity might turn off at some future moment, and so I can't actually um, feel secure? And Satan wants to keep me in an anxious mode of taking, hoarding, and self-protection. But this is not Satan's world. It is God's world. And God created it as gift for gift. And so will you let God tell the story of your money? Will you let him tell the story of your possessions or your lack of possessions? Or will we listen to the voice of the serpent? who might be telling us true facts, but weaved into the wrong story. You can't serve both God and money, but you must serve one. And so whose story are you living in today? Whose voice are you listening to? That's the wrinkle introduced by the fall, another voice. That's the challenge of sin, which is why every week we celebrate communion as our first response to the preached word to remember that God is the original giver. We have no power to give apart from the power of God's gifts, especially the gift of his son. Uh, Tanya pointed out last week the importance of receiving to giving, right? That, That in order to become good givers, we have to be good receivers. And so every week we receive communion. It's the simplest act to just take and eat. It doesn't require anything of us. We take his body and eat. We take his blood and drink. And we recognize that there's nothing we did or need to do. All we do is receive. Forgiveness, salvation, life, relationship, empowerment, rest, none of it can be earned. It's all a gift given through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we receive such an awesome gift, we leave remembering that we're 100% provided for, no longer wanting for anything. And that makes us leave as givers, ready to give. This is the way of Jesus. This is the economy of the kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful that our taking does not stop you from giving. That you... Make the sun shine on the just and the unjust and send the rain to the good and evil. And so that means that from the moment we were born, we have always been receiving from you. You've sent rain, you've sent sunshine, you've sent food, watered the mountains so that we would have wine to gladden our hearts, bread to give us delight, oil to make our face shine. 
More than that, we're thankful that you gave your son to think that we took from you and you still gave your only son that we might not perish but live eternally. Thank you for continuing to be a giver. Father, protect us from Satan, from sin, from stories of taking that produce fear and pride and anxiety in us. Father, root us in your story so that we might be able to speak back against the lies. Help us to discern when facts um, are true, but the story is untrue. Father, we need your help. We need each other. We're thankful for the opportunity to gather for worship and to remember that you are always, always a giver. It's the only thing you can do. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.